Hey, well, good morning, everybody. You brave the snow. You're here. You brave the time change. Hey, just give it up for yourselves today, right? This, that's a big day. There's a lot going on today. And you are here. Um, so we're in our final study of the Armor of God series. We've been looking at each component over the last uh, several weeks. I pray you've been encouraged and blessed by that. Uh, so today we look at the final, the final component. So again, I don't want us to just think of these as individual isolated components, but it's one working as a whole, working together. I think that's the design of the armor. We're going to highlight uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God today. So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into our text. Father, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to gather here, uh, to learn, to grow, to hear your Word, to sing worship in our hearts. And Lord, may you be pleased with that. And God, now as we transition to a time of opening Scripture, uh, we ask that you would also open up our hearts and our minds to uh, just grow, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us and for us. Lord, may it propel our lives forward so that we may look more uh, like Christ. So be with us, Lord, over these next few moments. Allow me to preach what is right and true, and may you receive glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was around 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he decided to get up off the couch and go get a breath of fresh air. Hour after hour of sitting on a couch uh, can get to a man after a while. So he goes upstairs, he goes to the roof of his house, and he just begins to soak in the Middle Eastern sun and just breathe in uh, the warm, uh, fresh air. And as he's doing that, he sees something that caught his attention. And at first, he, he looks away, a rush of guilt kind of comes over him, and the longer he's there, though, he kind of peeks over both of his shoulders. He doesn't see anybody there, so he begins to direct his gaze a little bit longer. Any thoughts that he had rushing through his mind at the moment were suddenly gone as he's looking at her. She's taking a bath in the afternoon sun, and he's watching the whole thing. His interests are piqued. At this moment, he doesn't even care that he's AWOL. He doesn't even care that he's supposed to be fighting with his, uh, with his army, with his soldiers to defend his nation, but he's back at home. He doesn't even care about that anymore. He wants her. And so he goes back into the house and he talks to his servants and he says, who is that lady across the street? She, he finally learns that she's actually the wife of one of his soldiers, the, actually one of the soldiers he should be fighting with. And he says, I want her. Go grab her and bring her back to my house. And so that's exactly what they did. They obeyed their leader and they bring her to his house and they spend the night together. He has all of his desires fulfilled. He's feeling satisfied with, with life, at least for a few weeks. It wasn't but a few weeks after that she comes to him and she gives the announcement that she's expecting a child. That's not how this is supposed to go at all. That was never on his radar. That was not supposed to happen. Plans are beginning to go sideways at this moment. So he begins to devise some plans to try and hide what he has done. So he gets a brilliant idea. He says, you know what, I'm going to have her husband come home from battle. I'm going to give him some reprieve and some respite. I'm going to allow them to spend some nice husband and wife time together. That way, when she starts to show and people know she's pregnant, they're just going to assume it's his child. So that's what happens. He comes home. The soldier comes home. But he's a man of integrity. He's a man of high character. And he decides that, you know what, if my soldiers that I am fighting with, if they're not going to go in and sleep in a house, then I'm not going to sleep in a house either. And so the soldier actually sleeps outside. And so the man has seen this, and 
he gets a little frustrated. This is not supposed to happen. You are supposed to go and sleep with your wife tonight. So he decides to take things to a new sinister level. So he invites a soldier to his house and feeds him the best food he has. He wines and dines him. He gives him the best wine that he's got. But the whole idea of this man is to get the soldier drunk enough to go into his house and sleep with his wife. That's the whole point. That way when, again, she's starting to show and people know she's pregnant, they'll just assume that it's the husband's baby. But the man is a man of integrity and character. So the soldier says, no, if, I, if my, my, my men aren't sleeping inside, I'm not sleeping inside. I'm going to sleep outside one more time. And that's what he does. Now frustrations begin to blow over. It's, 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 it's enough. It's enough sleight of hand, enough deception. I'm just going to eliminate the problem. So the man writes up some orders for the soldier to go out to the deadliest part of battle, knowing for sure, or at least a high likelihood, that you're probably going to die. This is probably going to be your fate. So the orders are written, the orders are given, and the soldier goes back to battle. And it wasn't long after that that, a struck, that he was struck, a blow came, and he was killed. Now, the man thought, okay, problem solved. All of it's hidden, all of it's concealed. I am good to go. I'm free. And he felt good for a while. See, one of his advisors is actually a prophet actually told him that he had some visions and some dreams, and it was actually discovered that this person was actually causing some pretty horrific sins and ruining a bunch of lives. And it says, you are the guy doing this. His sin has been exposed. His, his sin was on full display. No more hiding, no more deception. It was, it was all right there in the open, and his life was completely changed from that moment on. What I find interesting, though, is this man shouldn't have even been in Jerusalem at this point. See, the person I'm talking about is David. This is the account of David having an affair with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. And we actually discover that David should not have even been in Jerusalem in the first place. David was supposed to be at war. David was supposed to be in battle. David was supposed to be holding a sword and fighting at this time, not lounging on the couch. And so we think about this idea of the sword of the Spirit. I think there's some truths we can gather from that account. I think there's some truths we can gather from some other accounts as well. But we think about this idea. We want to be, this is a cautionary tale. Don't be like David. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17 that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not lounging on the couch. I know I said this a few weeks ago in the sermon I preached about the shoes, but this is a wartime situation. We are called, we are in a season where we have to be wielding our sword and, and, and putting on the rest of our spiritual armor. It's that kind of season that we're in. It's the kind of season we will be in until we leave this earth and we are glorified in the presence of Jesus. We are in a wartime situation. So it's a cautionary tale to, to grab our sword, to wield it well. And Paul says, it's the sword of the Spirit. What does Paul mean by the sword of the Spirit? Well, I think he's letting us know what kind of sword it is. It's a spiritual sword. I mean, I think we can deduce this based on what we see in the rest of the book. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is instructing and giving some theology on the Holy Spirit and our salvation in Christ, that when one places their faith in Jesus, we have the Spirit indwelling us. But in verse 3, he says that we have been given spiritual blessings. It's the kind of blessings that we receive. They're spiritual. Or if we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, 
Paul encourages us and tells us that there are certain songs as believers, as church attenders, that we are to sing, and they are spiritual songs. So we get to Ephesians 6, and we're talking about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Paul is saying that the sword that we use, the weapon of our warfare, is a spiritual sword. But I believe he's also giving us the origin. It's a spiritual sword given to us by the Spirit based on what we know how it's qualified. It is the Word of God. So it's a spiritual sword given by the Spirit, and it's the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's the sacred rise. I'm I'm convinced that when Paul says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, he's talking about the sacred Scriptures, the Holy Bible that we have. And Paul affirms this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And we'll revisit this passage a few times throughout our sermon. But it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Theophnustos, as if it was spoken by God himself and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's theophnustos. It's all scriptures breathed out by God. Paul is clearly talking about the sacred scriptures concerning the word of God. Now, there might be some who argue, well, the word of God may mean certain feelings or promptings or emotions we might feel that maybe God told me to tell you something. Now, I firmly believe in promptings of the Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit prompts you to write a note of encouragement to somebody or to pray with somebody or to give somebody a phone call or whatever that might be. I believe that that does happen. But we always want to parallel that with what does the Bible say? Because a lot of times we'll hear someone say, well, God told me to tell you A, B, or C. That's a very dangerous, slippery slope. The God told me so conversation is dangerous for a couple of reasons. The first one is this. What if God didn't actually say? Right? What if you just ate a bad burrito for breakfast that morning? A little indigestion. We, what if God didn't actually say? Or I think another reason it's dangerous is because we can't actually verify what you're hearing or what you're feeling led to do. We can't verify that. We can't hear what you're hearing or see what you're seeing. We can't verify that. So we always have to go to Scripture. So maybe an example would be like this. Maybe a man comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm, I think I want to divorce my wife. So I'm asking him questions. I'm, hey, is there adultery involved? Is there abuse? Is it abandonment? Is it violence? We're kind of looking through some of the biblical grounds of divorce. And he says, nope, none of that. I just don't like her anymore. I believe God's telling me to divorce her. Well, I have to then look at Scripture and say, okay, I'm not sure God's telling you to do this. We have to be very careful with the God told me so conversation. So, so knowing that when, we, when Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we're very confident that this is the Bible. This is the sacred scriptures of our, our word. This is the, God's word to us. This is what Paul is talking about. And Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit. Use it well. When we think about the other components of the armor of God, there aren't many skillful tools that we have. And what I mean by is there's not a lot of skill in wearing a pair of shoes. There's not a lot of skill in just wearing a breastplate or wearing a helmet or putting on and holding a shield. There's not a lot of skill when we think about that. But when it comes to holding the sword and wielding the sword and taking up the sword of the Spirit, there's a certain level of skill that is required to use a sword. And I think for us to know how to use the sword well, I think we want to look and study and learn from the master swordsman, who is Jesus. Jesus is a skillful swordman. Jesus knew how to handle the Word of God with precision and with grace and with mercy and authoritatively. Jesus knew how to do this really, really well. I think we can see this account in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. This is the temptation account of Christ. 
This is when he feels and is experiencing the onslaught of Satan's temptation towards him. And we see how he masterfully uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not carelessly, not recklessly, but, but authoritatively and precisely. Notice the, the text. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus was a master swordsman. Jesus knew how to skillfully and, and, and precisely use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, as I was studying this passage, I actually came across an article uh, that gave some tips and tricks on how to become a master swordsman. Though the author was talking, of course, physically, how to physically wield an actual sword and be a skilled sword fighter. From that article, it linked me to a book written by Hank Reinhardt, who actually listed eight qualities that one needs in order to be a master swordsman. So I'm reading this article, I'm, I'm studying this passage in Matthew 4, and I saw a lot of crossover between what the author was saying about holding a physical sword and what we need in order to hold a spiritual sword. Well, and I actually saw this come to life in the, in the heart of Christ as he is dealing with Satan in this battlefield. And so I wanna intersect some of those today. I'm not gonna talk about all eight, but I think there's a few that really come to life. See, Jesus did this, and I think if you and I want to handle the sword well, much like Jesus, we need conditioning. And this is the first quality that we need in order to handle the sword well. Now, of course, the writer, the author of the article was saying, was saying we need physical conditioning, right? Good core strength, good back muscles, maybe uh, some, some work on your traps and your deltoids. Like you are going to be able to hold a sword for a long period of time. But, but spiritually, I think we need spiritual conditioning in order to handle the sword well. And I think we see this in the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was, in the temptation account, he was doing what he had been conditioned to do for his whole life. He had been practicing and prepping and rehearsing, and he was ready for the moment when Satan attacked. Let's go back to Jesus' early childhood. See, he was born to Mary and Joseph. He, they were Jesus' earthly mother and father. And we do know a little bit about them. And so based on what we know, we can feel really confident that the scriptures, the Torah, the law would have been a part of Jesus' upbringing. Joseph was known as a righteous man or a Sadiq. He was, he was one of high integrity. He loved the Lord, worshiped the Lord, served the Lord. And then we have Mary. Mary was a worshiper. She found favor in the eyes of God. Again, she loved the Lord. She served the Lord. She worshiped him. And so we can be very confident that the, the Torah, the scriptures, would have been part of Jesus' life at a very early age. Now, I know we believe that Jesus is fully God, but we also believe simultaneously he's fully man. So Jesus would have learned to read and write and 
understand and comprehend, just like other Jewish boys. Jesus had to learn that, and this would have been an elemental part of his education, was the Torah. Let's fast forward a few years to when Jesus is 12. Jesus is 12 years old. His family is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And after the celebration, they begin their journey back home. But Jesus slips into the temple. So after Mary and Joseph realize that Christ is no longer with, and they begin to search, and they find him in the temple, what is Jesus doing? He is teaching and asking questions of academic superstars, and he's stunning all of them with his knowledge of the scriptures. He is, he's been conditioned. He had been conditioned. And now we get to the battlefield of his temptation. And Jesus had just been training all of his life to handle the sword well. When it came time for spiritual battle, Jesus was ready. And three times Jesus quotes scripture, it is written, it is written, it is written. And you and I, just the same, we're going to experience spiritual battle in our life. We're going to have the onslaught of temptation walk through our door. There's going to be plenty of opportunities for us to slip into sinful choices each and every day, multiple times per day. How do we handle it when those come through our doors? What are we conditioned to handle it well? Now, as believers, as Christ followers, I think there's a couple of ways that we can build up our spiritual conditioning. I think there's a couple of ways in which we can build our spiritual muscles. And I think the first way is this. We want to have a regular intake of Scripture. We want to have our, our conditioning on point, our spiritual conditioning on point. We need to have a regular intake of the Bible. Now, when I say the Bible, I actually mean the Bible. See, Jesus was able to have verses ready to use when the battle came. He had a regular intake of Scripture. And I think as believers, we need the same thing. Why do I say I mean actually the Bible? Well, what I fear and what, what I run into oftentimes is as believers, we have a tendency to devotionalize Scripture. Here's what I mean by this. We'll read a devotion that maybe has one or two verses sprinkled in, and we feel like that's my Bible time. I've been in the Word today. Now, don't hear me saying I don't like devotions. I actually like devotions. I read one on occasion. However, I, I don't want to make, sh- I, I make sure that my devotions aren't replacing my time in the Word. See, devotions are to be a supplement to what we're reading in Scripture. Devotions aren't the Word of God. Devotions, they can't be the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, those verses have value, and those devotions bring value to our life, and it can't propel us forward, but it can't replace what we need to find in the Scriptures. We have to read the Word of God. So maybe it looks like if, if you are reading the Bible maybe zero to one time per week, maybe increase that to one to two times per week. If you were to make an investment and know that you're going to have a 100% return, how many are making that investment? Every one of us, right? So if we're reading zero times a week, and then we start reading one time a week, that's a 100% increase. That's a big deal. That's a lot. So maybe if you're unfamiliar with the Bible and you're not used to reading it, try one day a week. But maybe you're on the two to three mark, maybe increase that by one day. I'm going to read three to four times a week. Or maybe you're like, well, I would much rather listen. I'm an auditory learner. I, I gather more if I'm listening rather than reading. There's an app for that. Multiple apps for that. You have the YouVersion Bible app has an auditory component to it. You can listen to the audio Bible. Dwell Bible app is another one where you can, you can listen to God's Word. That's a, a great way to consume and have a regular intake of Scripture. I'm not promoting either one of those, but I think they're both very helpful in listening to the Scriptures. They're, they're very, very good. We have to have a regular intake of Scripture. 
That's, that's one way we build our spiritual conditioning. We can handle the sword well. I think a second way we build our spiritual conditioning, being able to use the sword well, is by memorizing Scripture, committing it to our heart. You notice any time that Satan attacked Jesus, he, was, he readily had Scripture on his tongue. He was quoting Scripture back to the enemy. It is written Satan. I also think it's important to note that this spiritual enemy also had a significant amount of Scripture memorized. Albeit a twisted, distorted version of Scripture, was it the, the truthfulness of the Bible? But he was quoting Scripture back to Jesus, and Jesus was quoting him back, and the truth of Scripture was, was crushing Satan in that moment of battle. We want to have Scripture in our heart. I think that's why we have passages like Psalm 119.11. I have stored your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's in our heart. It's in our mind. It's fresh. It's there. It's ready for us. Or Psalm 37, 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The law of God, the, the word is in his heart. Or Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do you will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. See, part of our ability to skillfully handle the word and have our spiritual conditioning on point is to have passages memorized. So I have an opportunity to meet with a fair amount of people here at Highland, and one of the homework assignments I give them just about 100% of the time is to memorize Scripture. So my homework assignment to them is to grab a 3 by 5 index card or maybe a post-it note and to write a verse on it with the reference and to put it or tape it on their car dashboard or on their steering wheel. And each time you see it, each time you uh, get in your car, say it out loud, read it. Or maybe put it on your refrigerator. Each time you open the fridge or maybe it's the sink above, uh, the, the window above your sink. Each time you go into the kitchen, you have two places where you have that verse, say it out loud. Or maybe you're going to put it on the mirror in your bathroom. When every time you get rest, dressed for the day, you are going to see that passage. You're going to say it. You're going to memorize it. You would be surprised how often, how, how quickly we can memorize a passage the, the way we write down and the way we, the many times we say it. It's going to be committed to our heart. I think one of the ways we build our spiritual conditioning and have it on point is to memorize Scripture. And we want our conditioning to be ready when those moments of battle come, and they're going to come. So we need conditioning. But I think a second, a second quality that we need in order to handle the Word of God well, to use the, the sword skillfully, is confidence. And we need confidence. Now, confidence means having full trust in something, right? Well, in this case, it means having a full confidence, a trust that the Scriptures are indeed the Word of God. And having this trust for this weapon, it's critical in experiencing victory in spiritual battle. We have to have confidence in what the Bible says. And again, we see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? Right? So Jesus, when he is feeling the onslaught of Satan's temptations, what does he say? Confidently, without reservation, it is written. It is written. And the third time, be gone, Satan, it is written. See, Satan can't stand under the weight of Scripture. It's, Jesus had a confidence. It wasn't Jesus was somehow under attack and thinking, well, let me Google this real quick. How do I get out of the spiritual battle? No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, it is written. My weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Satan, it is written. He had confidence in it. And I, and I pray that you and I have confidence in the Scripture. But I do think having this confidence does surface a question. I think the question is, can we really trust the Bible? Can we really have confidence 
that the Bible is God's words to us. Can I really believe this? And I say with a resounding yes and an exclamation point, we absolutely can believe the scriptures to be the authoritative word of God. I think there's multiple reasons. Let me just give a few reasons why we can believe this. The first one, I, I want to talk about the claims the Bible makes about itself. Let me just talk about two claims the Bible makes about itself that is a supreme confidence booster for us to know the scriptures are true. Here is claim number one. The Bible claims itself to be the very words of God. The scripture are God's words. The Bible claims this for itself. I think this is a confidence boosting truth. Again, we think of passages like 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for these different things. The theological term is inspired. It's the inspiration of scripture. How much scripture? All scripture breathed out by God. Old New Testaments. Or we think of another passage, 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So, so yes, men wrote the scriptures, but as they were carried along and inspired by the Spirit. So we have the privilege of hearing their voices and hearing their, their characteristics and their personalities and, and the context of which they're writing and the audience of which they're writing to. We see all that, but the Holy Spirit, God himself, is, is carrying them along as they write Scripture. It's inspired by God. It's God's words to us. Or we think about Exodus thirty-one eighteen. It says, that he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, talking about God, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Of course, this is talking about the Ten Commandments, written by the very finger of God. So when you and I take up the sword of the Spirit, when we are having a regular intake of Scripture and we're memorizing Scripture, we can be confident that this is the Word of God. These are God's words to us. We can believe that just simply based on what Scripture attests about itself. Now, while the Bible is, is certainly giving me a confidence booster in these claims about itself. And the self-attestation is, is very, very impressive. I, I think there's one more claim that we want to think about. Uh, the scriptures are also the ultimate authority by which we live our life. It's the ultimate authority by which we live our life. When we think about points of doctrine and righteous living, we anchor ourselves in what the scriptures say. Again, I go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable, beneficial, useful for teaching, for Reproof for correction, for training in righteousness. It's, it's, it's helpful and it's necessary and needed to help us live a life for the glory of God. We have to have scriptures to do that. It's, it's the authoritative word of God. It brings authority in our life. And because of that, it allows us to have answers for questions about, well, what do we do with human sexuality and marriage? Well, let's go to what the scriptures teach. The scriptures say a lot about human sexuality and marriage and the family unit and what the design for sex and sexuality is. Like the Bible talks a lot about that. Or what about questions about finances and debt? The Bible actually talks a lot about that. Let's go to what the scriptures say. What does the Bible teach about finances and debt? Now, that's not to, to, to say we can't have wise counsel from other people and we're going to pray. That, that's all included. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says, also answers questions about, well, how do we handle suffering and despair and depression and discouragement. The Bible talks a lot about that. You cannot read the book of Psalms and not feel 
the depression and despair and discouragement of the writers of, that, of those psalms. It's all over the Scripture. We can go to the Bible to, to have those answers to these specific questions. It is our final and supreme authority. But not only that, it's the Scriptures that allow us to grow in a developing relationship with Christ. It draws us closer to Jesus. Let's, let's look at a few verses ahead of what we just read in 2 Timothy 3. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. So this is Paul having a conversation with Timothy, and he says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, Timothy, continue to cultivate time in the sacred writings. It was the sacred writings that were taught to you as a little boy, it was the sacred writings that are making you wise for salvation. Why? Because it expresses the salvific plan of God through Christ alone. It, it totally shines a light on who Jesus is, why he came, why this redemption is a big deal, and why Jesus is the only way. It shines a light on it. It makes us wise for salvation, brings us into a closer relationship with Christ. The Bible claims this authority for itself. So we see these couple of claims. There are, there are more. These are, just, these are just two. But what about some external evidences? I think there are things even outside of Scripture that affirm the authority of Christ and the reliability of the Scriptures, knowing that we can believe it to be God's words. Let's just think of the manuscript evidence for a second. So just for the New Testament alone, we have about 24,000 either full, partial, or fragments of the New Testament manuscripts. Around 6,000 or so full manuscripts, 18,000 or so partial or fragments of the New Testament alone. 24,000. Now, let's hold this in comparison to some of our, our secular resources of the day. Let's think of, or, or, or antiquity. Let's think of Homer. Homer has about 1,000 preserved and discovered manuscripts. 1,000. The New Testament has about 24,000, full or partial. Plato. Plato has about 263 discovered preserved manuscripts. 263 compared to 24,000 partial or full of the New Testament manuscripts. Or let's think about Tacitus. Based on the research that I've done, some scholars say there's two manuscripts, others say four manuscripts. Let's just use the high end of that. If we just use the high end of the manuscript evidence, all three of these writers of antiquity combined, it's just under 1,300 preserved written manuscripts. Compare that to the New Testament, that's 24,000. Now, these secular writers of antiquity are under much less scrutiny than the Bible, with far less, less evidence to support its it's authoritative claims, right? These are philosophers and historians. It's not the inspired inerrant word of God. The significance of manuscript evidence is just astounding. But there's some more external evidence as well. Let's think of archaeological evidence. Certain digs over the course of history have affirmed the Bible to once again be the words of God and authoritative and sufficient and reliable. Let me just talk about a couple of archaeological finds. Let's think of the Tel Dan inscription. So we knew that David was the king of Israel. We have the, the record in Scripture, but the Tel Dan inscription is a, basically a timestamp placing David as the, the king of Israel at his proper time. It, it affirms what the Bible has been teaching for millennia. The Bible is reliable, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's inspired by God, and God has taken careful uh, uh, grace and care in transmitting the words to us. But how about another archaeological find? How about Hezekiah's tunnel? You see, in 2 Chronicles 32 and 2 Kings 20, 
It talks about a, a conduit of water brought that was, that was bringing fresh water into Jerusalem under the authority of Hezekiah as the nation was under threat of attack by the Assyrians. Well, in 1838, guess what they discovered? They discovered a, a tunnel bringing fresh water into Jerusalem that, that was, that's still preserved and water flowing through it even yet today. And by God's grace, I actually had the opportunity to walk through that very tunnel about a year ago. So the tunnel is pretty small. It's about shoulder width. So I had to kind of squeeze my shoulders together. It's about six inches shorter than I am. So we're kind of walking around like this. And um, what, what's amazing is if you look at the water, it's crystal clear. It's ice cold. It's fresh water. It, it would have been a wonderful water supply to Jerusalem during this threat of attack. And I didn't do this, but I would have totally just scooped up water with my hand and drank it. It would have been totally fine. So now in 1838, we see this tunnel was discovered, affirmed, what the Bible taught already. So we see, these are just a couple. There are multiple, multiple evidences that give us the reliability of Scripture. It allows us to have a full confidence in the Scriptures. They are God's words to us. So we can confidently say in the moments of spiritual battle, it is written. We're handling our sword. We're picking it up. It is written. I am confident this is God's word. We have, we have it memorized in our heart. Satan, it is written. I feel the temptation, but it is written. I feel defeated, but it is written. My marriage is going south, but it is written. I've given in to sin time after time, but it is written. Right? We, we feel that. That's the confidence that we have in Scripture. May we have, may we have that as, as we move forward in the spiritual battle. So we want to have conditioning. We want to have confidence. But I think the final element that we want to practice and implement is caution. I think we need a great deal of caution. I want to look at this in two ways. I want to exercise caution against carelessness, and I want to exercise caution against being cavalier. Let me talk about those. Let me flesh those out a little bit more. See, one of the things that strike me in the temptation account of Jesus is how careful and how precise he is with the word. He's not just swinging wildly and, and just, kind of, just kind of hoping he hits something. You know, Jesus is intentional. He is careful with his words. He, he expresses God's word in ways that's just precise, like a surgeon in operation. We see this in other parts. Let's just fast forward. So in, in Matthew, if we go to chapter 5 and we read 5 to 7, we read the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is, is expositing scripture. and He is expounding on things that are cutting to the quick of people's hearts in such a surgical way. It's so powerful and so impressive because Jesus is not handling some lightweight topics here. He's interacting with things like prayer and judgment and anxiety and worry. He's, he's interacting with some hard things in the Sermon on the Mount. He does, he does it with such grace and such compassion and such care and with such a shepherding spirit. He's very careful. But what makes me sad is that a lot of times we see a lot of Christians not so careful with the word, not so careful with the sword. It's oftentimes, the, the blade is pretty dull, just to be honest. See, one of the things they taught us in Fort Myers is a dull blade is a dangerous blade. You use it in ways that you typically shouldn't use it. I think as Christians, we, we see that a lot, don't we? I think one of the ways we see Christians swinging the sword wildly and, and dully and without care is we, when we stand on our slogans more than we stand on Scripture. We see that a lot. And you, I'm sure you can think of those that have picketed and those that have 
or said hurtful things online. There's a lot of ways that we stand on slogans rather than Scripture, but that is a careless way to use Scripture. We'll stand on truth. We'll claim we're standing on truth, and that's the loving thing to do. And we want to stand on truth. We want to, we want to proclaim and share what the Bible says. We want, to, we want to call it sin if the Bible calls it sin, but we don't want to call it more than what the Bible calls it either. Right? So we want, to, we want to handle this with grace and truth and love. One author actually calls people who stand on truth without love terrifying truth-tellers. She actually goes on to say, don't be mistaken. A person can be absolutely right, yet be totally obnoxious about it. Our goal is for God's truth to be the aroma of Christ, not the stench of self-righteousness. See, we want, our, we want to be standing firmly on the truth of God's word, but an angry Christian swinging the sword wildly doesn't do anyone any favors. It actually causes a lot of damage, causes a lot of harm. We, we are not proclaiming the aroma of Christ to be desired, but one to be avoided when we swing the sword wildly. It's brutal. In fact, one pastor says, all truth and no love is brutality. We want to stand on truth, but we want to to season our truth with grace and mercy and compassion. Yeah, we're going to call sin, sin, just as the Bible does. And we're going to handle that with grace and compassion and care and mercy when we are able to do so. We want to handle the word in a way that brings the aroma of Christ. It is not our job to convict the world of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's role. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He is really good at it. We are conduits of God's grace. We proclaim the truth. We'll stand on truth. We'll call the, 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 the sin, sin, if that's what the Bible does. But we're also going to see the person with a name and a face and a soul and, and love them well. So we want to be very careful. We want to exercise caution against carelessness. But I think a second area worth noting in, in regards to being careful is, is not being cavalier. Meaning we want to avoid becoming arrogant, right? Unaware that, that if we are off our guard, if we lay the sword down, that our enemy is going to get too close. This is what happened in the life of David. He put, his, he put his sword down physically, but he also put his sword down spiritually, and the enemy got too close, and, and he carries his own sword. And he's going to slash and cut and stab and swipe as much as he possibly can. And if we have let our guard down, if we have let our sword down, the enemy comes in. So I think as believers, we want to be wise and not too cavalier, and we want to make sure that our enemy is staying at a blade's distance. You're not getting any closer than right here. This is it. This is my circumference. This is the area that, that God has, has empowered me. You are not coming any closer. I'm going to hang on to my sword. I'm going to wield the shield of faith. I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to wear the helmet of salvation. I'm going to have my shoes on, the belt of truth on. I'm going to be ready for the battle. This is it. But David dropped his sword, didn't he? That's why it's a cautionary tale. We see this in the text. In the springtime of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants, with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. How, how many of us may be in that same boat? We would just put our sword down. And just like David, David became a casualty of war. The enemy just started slashing and started cutting, but that wasn't the end for David. And maybe some of us in the room feel like casualties of war. Maybe we feel like the enemy just gotten too close to my life. It doesn't mean it's the end for you. It just means you need to pick up the sword. It just means you got to put the armor back on. And it means you got to get off the couch and start doing battle, just like David. 
See, this is a wartime situation. So we don't want to be cavalier. We want to be very careful in how we use the sword. We want to build up our spiritual conditioning, and we want to fight for the glory of God, knowing that he is fighting for us. So friends, we can, yield, we can wield the sword well. We can have joy in the spiritual attacks that we face. We can have joy in the presence of our brothers and sisters who God has graciously given us to, to help in this battle. And we know that ultimately God will receive glory for himself as he fights for us. Highland Church, let's pick up the sword. Let's use it well. Let's live lives for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for this time today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a study on the armor of God and the ways that we've been learning how to apply it, Lord. So give us an intensity and a passion to do this well. Uh, Lord, give us reminders throughout our uh, days and weeks upcoming that you indeed are fighting for us. And Lord, you have not called us to fight the battle on our own or even to, to fight without any protection. Lord, you have given us armor. So Lord, may we wear this armor well. May we pick up our sword. Give us conditioning. Give us confidence and allow us to exercise caution in these various ways. And may, again, you receive glory. In Christ's name, amen.